Radio shows you love from the people you know. This is Sam Talks Technology. Hello and uh, welcome again to Sam Talks Technology. Today I'm really pleased to say I'm joined by Marcus Kauke, who is a licensed Sandler trainer. And we'll learn more about what that means. Uh, he describes himself as a fitness instructor for sales teams, which is brilliant. Um, Marcus is going to be talking to us today about how you can reduce a sales process from two years to three months and how you can increase your close rate by 96%. Uh, I've never done sales directly, I've done marketing, but I'm really interested to find out how Marcus has managed to pull these sales cycles down so tightly. Um, hello, Marcus, how are you? Hi, Sam, thank you very much for having me today. Oh, my pleasure. Now, Marcus, uh, you are a licensee for Sadler. You have been for just about 16 years, I think. Um, who and what is Sandler first? Let's go through that. Sandler is a heretical sales approach. Essentially, we turn everything on its head. So instead of the traditional sales process of qualify for money, authority and need, present features, advantages and benefits, trial close and then follow up with some form of proposal, what we do is we do the opposite. So we close at the beginning. Then we spend our time trying to get prospects to say no to us. So we aim to disqualify people. And if they make it through that disqualification process and they qualify, then we may make a presentation. But we will present once to the entire decision-making committee and only for a yes or a no and no thinking overs. So did I hear that correctly? Your goal is to get the qualifying customer to say no as fast as possible absolutely if you think of it like a game of football you win on goal difference and every time the goalie saves a goal i was watching uh, yesterday the france versus uh, nigeria um, game and um it was great when the goalie was saving goal after a goal attempt after goal attempt and she kept the score down um and th the thing is an early qualified no is a win, it's a victory. Um, because most sales cycles um, end up being dragged out because the salesperson is afraid of a no and they accept a maybe. And they accept a maybe because they have a weak or empty or inconsistent sales pipeline. And what happens, and this is slightly non-PC, is they end up with a pipeline that bulges at the top, a Dolly Parton pipeline or a Kim Kardashian pipeline. It gets constant. <laughs> with um, non-prospects. And the, I, I remember sitting in on a prospect sales meeting where the manager heard the salesperson say, boss, I know this is the 10th month that this deal has slipped, but that's exactly why it's gonna land this month. And the sales manager blithely put it back into the forecast. Well, our job as sales managers is to hire the best people and get the best out of them. The salesperson's job is to go to the bank it's not to have a full fat pipeline full of maybes and hope hopers Their job is to get to the truth and they need to be ready to ask tough, insightful, difficult, challenging questions. And they need to be ready to hear answers that they were hoping they wouldn't. But most salespeople have a wishbone, not a backbone. And they qualify um, in sales by being given a business card and a phone and told you are one. Professional selling is like any other profession. You need to work at it. You need to train constantly. 
So most sales training, frankly, is a total waste of money. Uh, you would be better buying a bunch of lottery tickets. You'd get a higher return than most of your sales training if you're working on one or two day boot camps and that's it. Um, you know, feed people from a fire hose and hope some of it uh, is actually applied. Coaching is another critical part of the process. And managers who coach typically have 80% plus of their salespeople hitting quota. People, uh, sales managers who don't, and this year, sorry, 2018 was the first year where fewer than 50%, it was 44% according to CSO Insights and Salesforce hit their quota worldwide. Now that's a shocking statistic. The idea that fewer than 50% of the salespeople on your team will hit quota, but sales managers tolerate it because they see recruitment as a chore instead of the single most important job that they have. So we operate in Sandra uh, looking at the entirety of their sales operation and how it impacts the business. So we look at their strategy. We look at the positions that they need to create in order to become the business that they want to become. We retrofit the people that they do have to see whether or not they have the potential to fit one of those roles. If they don't, then they need to be positioned into another role that they're better suited to or replaced. Um, then we look at their um, uh, processes and we look at how they go about doing things, how they attract, how they disqualify, how they bring people through the funnel, the questions that they ask. Everything can be systematized and systems set you free. And then we look at the performance metrics, what you measure, um, and looking at leading indicators instead of lagging indicators. Now, most bad managers, in fact, um, it, Jonathan Farrington, the editor of uh, Top Sales World, um, said that 96% of sales managers out there, sorry, 94% of sales managers are unqualified to be sales managers. And largely because they came through because they were the last one on before they turned out the lights, um, or they were the best salesperson. And they are massively different skill sets. Um, I have a client, Keith, who isn't a great salesperson, but what a manager. Wow, the guy is awesome. Um, and he's taken a moribund failing sales team that was losing money that had forecasting variance of 60% either way. Normally they came, went in 60% above where they were gonna hit their target, came in 60% under. And his forecasting accuracy is between half and 5% uh, against actual every single month now. Um, he's helped uh, weak sales performers perform excellently and excellent sales performers perform out of this world. Um, and that's because he focuses on coaching, really understanding them, their motivations, their drives, uh, their aptitudes, and helping to work around their weaknesses until those can be built up. And so in, in Sandra, we've, we are not your traditional sales trainer. Um, we operate on the basis of long-term ongoing reinforcement. In order to create a habit, you need to do a minimum of 66 days of repetition based on the latest research, and sometimes up to 260 days of repetition. Um, there's so many myths about learning out there, particularly adult learning, and they're wrong. Um, you need to get people to go out and fail. They have to go out there and learn from their mistakes. Um, so we're big on the whole concept of compound interest in learning. So one of the first lessons I teach my managers is the half a percent rule. Everybody in their team is expected to improve by half a percent per day. 
Let's capture three lessons, apply one of them. That's all they need to do. If they do that, at the end of the year, if you invest £100 and you uh, get half a percent daily interest over a 270-day year, you end up with £373 in your bank account. So it's not difficult, but most people have a mental block. And that's the biggest area that we get involved in. It's helping you get out of your own way. My favorite Sandra rule is if your foot is hurting, you're probably standing on your own toe. <laughs> okay, so I've got a couple of questions from that. You know, as I said, I've never been in sales, but I was always taught salesmen are born, they're not made. And you're saying, no, I'm just, you know, obviously that's what I've heard. So it's interesting to say what you're saying is fundamentally you can make salesmen that, that well, you, what you said first of all was certain salespeople have to be moved out of the role. So clearly there are people who can't be in sales, but those that are and that have an acumen towards it, you can help them improve incrementally. As you said, half a percent, maybe a day would be good. Uh, absolutely. Well, wh when you think about it, did you pop out of your mother's womb able to be a marketeer? Or no. Or a doctor or a proctologist, whatever. It doesn't make any difference. You have to learn it. Sales is an acquired skill. Yes, you may have a certain aptitude towards it. Um, but the challenge here is that um, there are so many terrible, terrible beliefs and myths around selling. One is that salespeople are born, not made. That's total codswallop. Um, salespeople learn, and they learn best the hard way. Um, you, you learn from failure. Failure is your best teacher. It's universal, it's unavoidable, and it's part of the human condition. So the simple rule is fail fast, fail early and fail often, but learn from your failures, not learning from them. That is stupid. Uh, learning from them, that's not a personality defect. Failure is just a function of role. It's not part of your identity. Uh, you are not a failure. You have failed in your position. Um, and so shifting people's mindset uh, around failure is really important. The next thing is have a system for the first 17 years of my career, I fought against systems because I thought it stifled my creativity. Um, I, I just wrote a post on um, what I would tell my 23-year-old idiot self. And it's, received, it's been really well received. Yes, I read it this morning. Um, well, what, one, of the, one of the things there is that failure is not fatal. Um, it's it, well, it's rarely fatal. If you're um, I don't know, working a patrol uh, in some war zone, then, then perhaps it might be. Uh, but in sales, all it is is a bad cold call or a bad sales meeting. Um, so come out, capture the lessons, and don't make the same mistake again. Um, now, having systems is really important as well because systems allow you to know exactly where you are. It also gives the buyer comfort that you know what you're doing because people buy in spite of how you sell, not because of how you sell, when you wing it. Um, the traditional sales methodology of qualify, present, close, and follow up is essentially what I would term we have, winging it and hope and a prayer. And what it does, it puts all the power in the hands of the buyer because there are three myths that buyers have created. The first one is the customer is king. The customer is not king. The customer is never more or less than your equal, even on your worst day. And so most salespeople, I ask them this question, Sam, what are your rights when you're selling? And they give me a blank look, much like what you've just given me. 
Yeah, well, a, a, I've never thought of it, but yes, go on. Okay, so I have the right to ask tough, insightful, challenging questions. I have the right to give and get permission for a no. I have the right to agree a clear next step at the end of every conversation. I have the right to equal business stature. I have the right to get paid what I am worth. I have the right to have some fun along the way. I have the right to walk away. And this Bill of Rights is one of the first things that I teach my clients so that they no longer give away their power. The second is um, the buyer is always right. The buyer's almost never right. If they knew what the problem was at its cause, they would have fixed it already. They wouldn't need our help. And buyers come to us for leadership and a safe pair of hands. And this is the clincher. And it's the man with the gold makes the rules. Well, the gold is actually the commodity. In 2010, at the depths of the worst recession in recorded economic history, 1.3 trillion, that's 1.3 billion, billion pounds went through the UK economy. So there were salespeople up and down the country licking their wings in um, hotel lobbies, uh, supping black coffee because they couldn't afford a cappuccino anymore, um, saying, <laughs> no one's buying. What they really meant was no one's buying from me. We did really well in recession. And I, my clients do really well in recession because people need us even more in recession. So money is the commodity. What we offer is a solution to their pain. And this again is another problem that most salespeople focus on features and benefits, which are our data. Buyers buy for their reasons and they never argue with their own data, but they'll argue with yours till you're blue in the face. So I can tell you my shiny widget is better than the carbungulator on the rippets. Um, and you're gonna think, do I care? Okay, now if on the other hand, you tell me that you need a shinier widget, because if you have a shinier widget, it's going to allow you to increase production by 37%. And that means that you're gonna hit your personal bonus and you can now afford to pay your kids school fees. Yeah, that's way more compelling. And so salespeople suffer. There's, there's another myth, which is that salespeople have to have the gift of the gab. They don't. There are three or four really important skills salespeople can have. One is empathy, genuine empathy. Another is vulnerability the willingness to admit that they're wrong, that they don't know, and to struggle. The next thing is being able to ask great, insightful, tough, demanding, challenging, uncomfortable questions, and to listen empathically and to reflect. Now, very little of what a salesperson should be doing, a professional salesperson, is speaking. 30% of the time, the salesperson should be asking those great questions and 70% of the time, the buyer should be talking. But if you listen to the balance in traditional sales, 90% of the time, the salesperson is talking and they're answering the buyer's question. Your job is to gather information, not to give it. And that's why they rush to do the presentation. They love doing presentations because it allows them to show how clever and smart and knowledgeable they are. But no one cares. The, the presentation is like showing photos of your ugly child to a stranger. They, you know, they'll, they'll politely suck at two or three slides of it. And after that, they're thinking, how quickly can I get this clown out of my office? Yeah. And so I've got 
two questions from what you've said. One early, you said that part of what you do is training to look to improve their weaknesses. Now, when I was at Microsoft, we had a book called Strength Finder. Yeah. And it actually said the opposite to that in what it said was, if you're Linford Christie, there is no need to train for cross country. And often what we used to find was that many people would say, here's your analysis of your um, review with your manager. Here's the five things you did brilliantly. Here's the five things you did badly. Let's focus on those five bad things. And what Strength Finder would do is say, no, 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 focus on what you're really good at and increase that. So for me, it was a, it was a, uh, an epiphany moment when I realized that I'm good at certain things. I'm a starter, not really a great finisher. I'm great at opening doors. Let me go down that road and focus my time there rather than trying to learn the skills that probably are weak-ish, but somebody else in the team could probably compliment me. So if I, if I gave that impression, I apologize. I absolutely 100% agree that your strengths are your development areas. And um, what I said was that you work around your weaknesses. And okay. one of the, if you have a team, if you're, if you're not a small business um, and you have a team, then it does make a huge amount of sense uh, to find people whose strengths make your weaknesses irrelevant. When you're first starting out, it's just you. You have to play to your strengths and then you can work on those weaknesses, but they're never going to become strengths. But what you can do is minimize their negative impact. Absolutely. So I absolutely 100% agree. We're in violent agreement. Good. Now, the other thing you talked about a lot is uh, EQ, emotional intelligence. Would you say women are better than men at EQ, which is something I found in my personal uh, very un- uh, let's say scientific view of the world, but women tend to have greater emotional intelligence than men. Men tend to be, you know, look at me, look at how great I am. Let me tell you all about me. So um, me and my wife call it willy wagging where men will go into a meeting and they will drop a business card down that says super senior greatest thing since sliced bread.com. And then they will spout for half an hour about them or everything they've ever achieved uh, to your point, they won't listen. Uh, and then at the end, they're shocked when somebody doesn't want to do whatever they want them to do. Whereas women tend to go in with more empathy, more of a listening circle. And then, you know, that tends to either build, I don't know, collaboration. So are women better salesmen than men? Or is that just a very general sweeping statement that I shouldn't make? The, the glib response is yes. And I would take it further in that, Culturally, men are encouraged to be, uh, certainly in the Western world, we're encouraged to be more forthright um, and to promote ourselves. But I absolutely agree that the best salespeople I have ever known have been women. Um, and they outsell their male counterparts by anything up to 14 to 1. Um, so you know, that, that gives you an indication of just how powerful it is. However, you can... Your history doesn't have to write your future. And there is a fantastic book by Ryan Holiday called Ego is the Enemy. And it's a must read. It's one of the first books I always recommend people read. There's another book by Dr. Mark Goulston called Just Listen, which is the best book on sales that I have ever read. 
um, because it doesn't really talk about sales. It talks about listening and you listen your way to a sale. And there's another fantastic book called Essentialism by Greg McEwen, which focuses on doing less but better on purpose. And what's really interesting about all three of these books is that they put the other person first. Um, I remember one of my clients uh, ran a web development company. We helped them grow 1,200% in the first year. And he then set up a number of other businesses, one of which was a speaker agency. And Dr. Stephen Corey, bless his soul, um, before he died, came over and he was giving a talk that um, my uh, clients had invited him to uh, deliver. And I asked a very average question. I can't even remember what the question was. But Dr. Covey came back with an answer that literally was a watershed moment. It was a, it was a defining moment in my career. And his response was, the greatest among us serve the most. Let me repeat that. The greatest I, I, among us taking that serve. all in. Yeah. Okay. Now, um, service is not servitude. And so uh, a fantastic parody of this is Jeeves and Jeeves and Wooster. Jeeves is all about service. He maintains his calm. He always protects his idiot boss. Um, and uh, he always makes sure that the boss looks better than he really deserves to. Um, and he he's, tells the kind truth. He listens with empathy. Um, and great salespeople listen with empathy. Now, that's different to buyer empathy. And there's a very important distinction to be made. Buyer empathy is where I say, you know, if it were me, I'd probably want a discount. If it were me, I'd probably want time to think it over. That's not good for a salesperson. Real empathy is understanding, looking through the eyes and feeling through the, uh, the experience of the buyer and really getting to grips to understand where they're coming from. You have to meet them where they are, not where you want them to be. Um, and you don't meet them halfway. You have to learn how to be a chameleon and you have to learn how to modify your communication style. So if someone is fast paced, big picture, then you need to be fast paced, big picture. If they're slow, detail orientated, you need to modify that. So there are elements of matching and mirroring, which there's a concept uh, that's um, talked about a lot in NLP. Um, but also it's about the intent. If your intent is to make the sale, you will get reflected back what you project out. And so that will create defense walls. If on the other hand, your intent is to establish, can I help? Is this right for both of us? And have a win-win or no deal mentality. Then they see you as an ally instead of an adversary and they come out of the goal and you're both kicking into an open goal against the problem. And so this then brings up the subject of partnership. Um, I think one of the biggest mistakes that I see happening in the general business world is the massive emphasis on new business. If you're any damn good at keeping your customers, you wouldn't have to spend so much time going out and starting afresh every month. Um, and so uh, with respect to direct sales, that whole piece around customer experience and customer retention, I think is the single most important function within the sales and marketing operation. And I believe that's where um, power should lie. And sales should report into the customer experience uh, team. Marketing should report into the customer experience team. And in channels, which is my particular baby, um, 
I believe that whole piece around partner experience is really key um, because a partner is worth multiple times any end user customer. Um, I, I have a client I was coaching earlier on this week and um, his challenge was this. He had, uh, he's been uh, the uh, reseller for a vendor for the last 15 years and he's generated roughly a million pounds a year in income. The average client spends 12,000 pounds a year with them but they're doing away with their partners and they've mistreated their partners for the last seven or eight years um, because they wanted to go direct. Now, this is just ludicrous. So I, I believe that an area that really needs to be focused on, both culturally and in terms of training and in terms of how people are compensated, is the experience that customers have. Because the transaction is over when the money clears your account. The sale is over when the customer comes back and says, Sam, you know, I had my reservations and doubts, but by God, this is the best decision we ever made. Thank you. You've made such a difference to our business. That's when the sale is over. And each account is a marketplace in and of itself, especially when you're selling into enterprise. Um, and so you don't have an account if you're selling to just one bit. You have an account when you're selling to multiple parts and you're selling a range, the full range, of your entire portfolio and they keep coming back and recommending their friends that's an account otherwise all you have is a customer everything you've said sorry i was nodding my head and listening very clearly um i had an interview uh, a couple of weeks back with a canadian friend of mine tara hunt who's a marketing strategic marketing specialist and you've both come to the same point of conclusion which is her, her statement from a marketing perspective was content has no value attention has no value influencers have no value the only thing that matters is relationships and what you just said there was fundamentally you could go in and try and sell the latest greatest widget and you can try and you know take your commission quickly but fundamentally if you build a relationship with your partner or your end customer that will have a longer term value return to you in the you know, as a, as a company, as a salesperson. Absolutely. I wrote a piece yesterday on LinkedIn and it basically says, um, Sam, I think you should go with our competitor. What do you mean? Well, it sounds to me like this particular aspect is far more important and they are much stronger in that area than we are. And um, I would be doing both of us a disservice if I tried to sell you what we have. Go with them and you go with my blessing. And I think great salespeople can do that. Um, because what they do is they focus on the right end of their job, which is filling the pipeline. You prospect the choice. If you have 12 opportunities in the pipeline and you only need to land two and you have a one in three close rate, you build contingency into your funnel. But if you need to close two and you only have three and one of them drops out, you're in trouble. If two of them drop out, you're in deep trouble. I was going to say something else then. Um, Thank and, you. Um, <laughs> Uh, and the, the problem is that salespeople are averse to doing the right thing very often. They're, they, they're afraid of rejection because they take it personally. Um, they get That's ego, isn't it? Is that ego? It's ego, and it's also um, a sense that they are personally being rejected. Your proposition is being rejected. When a gatekeeper does her job or his job and blocks you, they're trying to protect their boss because they have three jobs. 
let the right call through, stop the wrong calls going uh, through, and protect enough time so they can find out what they're meant to be doing from their boss while he's, he or she is busy doing something else. Yes. Okay? Um, and salespeople don't understand that the telephone is the single most powerful tool we have for prospecting. Content is fantastic when applied appropriately. I, I did half a million in sales last year off the back of my LinkedIn content. Um, networking, very powerful, but actually most networking is done poorly. Um, so I focus on referral partnerships. I have one client uh, who is my referral partner. I've helped her grow her business from scratch in December to February doing half a million turnover. Um, and she's helped me generate 200,000 pounds in new business. We talk regularly and consistently. We educate one another. We have a grown up adult to adult relationship where if a referral is wrong, we tell each other and we don't take it personally. If it's right, we tell each other and we say, explain why. We educate one another on how to refer each other well. So um, for me, public speaking, podcasts, these kind of things are great uh, in terms of creating awareness and familiarity. But once we get beyond that, now we have to create engagement. And that engagement has to be in their world. Um, so one of the things that we teach is something called a 30-second commercial. Now, traditionally, you're taught to do an elevator pitch. Hi, Sam. My name is Marcus Cathy from Salma Training. We're the world's largest sales and sales management training organization operating across 42 countries. We do a quarter of a billion a year in fee income, at which point you lose interest. Okay. Instead, what I would do is I would try and enter into your world. It's a bit like that scene in Finding Nemo, where they're swimming along, they catch the Gulf Stream, and they go whooshing along. Um, so your job is to enter the world that your prospect inhabits. So, um, Sam, I may not be, uh, sorry, uh, Sam, th this may not be right for you, um, but let me tell you in 30 seconds why I'm calling, and then you can either hang up or we can talk for two more minutes. Does that sound reasonable? Okay. Yeah, and that would be that would be a really useful intro to me because I'll go, okay, I'll give you my 30 seconds. Absolutely. Right? And at the end of it, I can go, no, that didn't work for me, Marcus. And you'll go, great, let's walk I'll away. On five things. You listen, I speak, you make a yes or a no decision. And if, we, uh, if it's a yes, then we talk for two more minutes. Now, you've never met me before, but I've closed you, okay, where there's no resistance. The next thing is, Sam, typically we help. Owners of what type of business do you want to be? Pick something. Oh, let's say uh, car manufacturer. Okay. Typically. Why a car manufacturer? Uh, it doesn't matter. It's, a, it's irrelevant. Okay. Yes. Um, Sam, typically we help CEOs and car manufacturing who are frustrated um, because of increased competition from foreign imports. Uh, others are worried about the impact Brexit may have uh, because of tariffs and exports. Um, to uh, Europe, and um, a few are concerned that their US exports are going to be hammered by tariffs as well. I don't suppose any of these are uh, problems that are causing you concern, are they? And of course, I'm going to nod to all three of those, yes. Okay. So what I've done is I've tried to target something that is relevant. It's a conversation you're already having, and it's all about you. You notice at no point do I talk about me, my company, my products, my services. I don't even mention my name. Yeah, so this, this is what I used to call WIFM, what's in it for me. Okay, so it's all about what's in it for the customer. And then my job is to make sure that we're talking about stuff that matters to you. So Sam, of those three things, um, 
com competitors uh, undercutting you, um, Brexit and tariffs, which is the one you'd like to talk about first? See, this is where <clears throat> I get very defensive, but I, I see where it would go, but I would instantly know I'm being sold to. I okay. would feel that I was being sold to. <clears throat> Play it along. Okay. Uh, let's talk about that horrible B word Brexit. Okay. I'm curious, why did you pick Brexit rather than um, the uh, competitors coming in and undercutting you? Because they all have the same problem as me. They face the same challenge of Brexit. So we're all in that same boat. But Brexit's the one thing I can't actually change. Or, so it's the one that keeps me awake at night because that's going to affect my business most. That makes a lot of sense. I, I hear that from every CEO that I'm speaking to. Tell me something. Why is it going to have such an impact on you? And now because, they talk about Yeah, and 80% of my market's over there and blah, 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 and tariffs, etc. So tell me something. Do you mind if I ask you why you haven't refocused on increasing your share of the market within the UK to at least inoculate yourself against that? And I might argue I, I am in the process of doing that. Okay. And so tell me something. Do you feel that you're 100% satisfied with the solutions you've got in place? And the answer always will be no. Okay. So is it worth taking that conversation a little bit further? Fuck. And that, that may be the way to go. And I, I can see how you've done it. You've built empathy with me. You've built rapport. You've taken me to a point where I've said, yes, I have a challenge and a problem. Now you've opened that door. And now through that door, you're going to go through. Yes. And who feels like they're in control? Um, I suppose I am because I'm doing most of the talking in that relationship conversation. And who gave permission? I did because I've allowed you to continue the conversation. So again, <laughs> permission, permission. And I haven't read your book yet, but I should. <laughs> well, the, what's really important to understand is that the buyer needs to feel like they're in control. They're our rules, but the buyer feels like they're in control because at any point they can say no. At any point they can stop the conversation and say, enough, I'm going to hang up now. And that's okay. But if you seek permission, then they never see you as a threat. So it, in the real world, this stuff works in the field. It's not theoretical, it's practical. And everything that we teach is built in the crucible. It's always about making sure that the prospect gets their needs met. It's not about you. In fact, one of the things we teach is you are not important in the sale. Your job is to be a conduit to help the prospect work out the problem at its cause for themselves. Now, when you do that, that is a, um, a revelatory moment for them because that's never happened to them before. Because most salespeople come along and say, look at my shiny uh, toy. Um, this is the reason why I think you should buy. But at no point am I, asked, uh, am I telling you why I think you should buy. You do all the work. So you literally do the presentation, you handle your own objections, and you close yourself. Now, that creates zero res resistance and also zero objections. I, I have a couple of videos uh, of my daughter 
Now, the first one is my daughter, aged 11, making a prospecting call to a prospect. We ended up winning a 16,000 pound account off the back of it. Um, and what's really interesting is at no point did she mention her name or the company or any of the products or services until the end, after he booked into uh, the time in the diary, um, he said, oh, by the way, what's your name? And this is seven minutes into the conversation. Okay. And he then asked, how old are you? Well, I'm 11. <laughs> All right. Okay. And yeah, that must her, have her, her response to that is priceless. And she says, well, how do you feel about the fact that uh, your salespeople are resisting making cold calls uh, when I can do it? Um, and that kind of clinched the deal. Um, so what, what's really interesting here, though, is that the buyer is front and center of everything that you do in the sale if you're a professional salesperson. But most salespeople are order takers. And if they're really atrocious, they are negotiators. And by negotiator, I mean give stuff away in order to buy the business. Uh, professional selling can be defined as getting your fees on your terms and both sides walk away happy and satisfied eventually. They don't have to like it. They don't even have to like you but they do have to trust you. They have to know that you have their best interests at heart, that they feel like they're in control and that at any point, either side, if it's not right, will raise their hand and say, it's over. And both sides will walk away with their dignity intact and they'll part as friends. Now, in that example, a friend of mine, um, sorry, a client of mine, also a friend, um, did the uh, piece about, look, you should buy from somebody else. That afternoon, he got a phone call from the same prospect where they gave him some additional business because that built credibility and trust. And so I think are you saying honest salesman is what we have? I believe you should be scrupulously, disarmingly, self-harmingly honest. If there is a problem, you should raise it. If there is an objection, you raise it. Don't, um, the, what's the film, Beetlejuice? Yeah, mm -hmm. if you say Beetlejuice three times, he appears. Um, and a lot of salespeople have that same kind of mentality that if they raise an objection, you know, they hope it will disappear. Uh, but if they say anything about it, it's going to be a catastrophe. An early qualified no is a saving a goal. It's a win. And in an enterprise sale or in a partner sale where both teams are working you know, hand in glove, you could spend um, anything from you know, 10, 15, 40,000. I, I was uh, on a podcast recently with my co-author, uh, David Davies, and he's working with a fintech company, and it costs them 152 pounds, uh, 152,000 pounds per pursuit. Now they close about one in six. Wow. Their average profit in the first year is 130,000 pounds. So the hidden cost of sale is astronomical. And so one of the things that we really focus on is eliminating those hidden costs of sale, hidden costs of wrong hires, hidden cost of pursuits, uh, hidden cost of taking on the wrong type of business. Um, if you take on the wrong client, they're the ones who complain the most, who require more rework, uh, who tie up your resources. So what you say no to is more important than what you say yes to really focus on defining and understanding who your ideal customer is. Make sure that you are focused so heavily on wowing them 
so that they have a delicious and delightful experience that they want to come back. When you phone them, every call adds value. It's not, hi, it's just a quick check-in call and you're just an interruption to their day. You know, I, I don't know about you, um, but the, the majority of CEOs that I speak to, by midday, they've already made 130 to 150 decisions um, about their business. And if I'm interrupting them with some drossy five-minute interruption and it takes seven minutes to recover uh, their concentration, that's 12 minutes of their day. That's one-fifth of an hour. Um, and there's eight hours in the working day. You know, it's a big percentage. So we need to be cognizant that our customers do not live and breathe and think about nothing but us. Our partners don't think about selling our products. We need to be aware that we have to help them get their needs met. And in order to do that, we have to really, really pay attention. And my good friend, Ron Vopereis, came up with this concept that attention is a currency. You pay attention. You build an emotional bank account. And when it's in credit, you have flexibility. But when it's in deficit, in overdraft, you don't. And the majority of salespeople start at a balance of zero and go below it and go into overdraft. I believe that our job is to build this massive credit in that uh, emotional account and really focus on the customer. Make them understand that we actually care. And make sure you care. It's not that uh, you're doing it to make a sale and to hit your quota. Your quota is going to happen anyway if you get enough other people to get their needs met. So, so if we've got this wonderful uh, model that Sandler has put together, I, I, I take it that's a model that Sandler put it. Who is Sandler? I mean, let's go back to 101. I, I love everything you've said so far about the selling model because as a marketeer, there are, there are parallels to where I see current models of marketing, okay? It, it, we both agree the bottom line is about creating relationships. You know, the, the stronger that relationship, the stronger the value proposition, the stronger the longer-term goal that you both will achieve. But who's Sandler and how did you get into Sandler? I'll deal with that in just one second. I, I just want to pick okay. up on one thing you said about relationship. Um, a lot of salespeople hide behind, it's all about the relationship. I firmly believe that it's all about trust and consistency and the relationship builds from that. Um, but a lot of people, I hear them say, oh, we've got to build relationships with people. And what they really mean is they want to make friends. If you need a friend, get a puppy, join the Red Cross, become a Samaritan. Yeah. Um, you're not in sales to make friends. You're not in sales to get your emotional needs met. And this is one of the fundamental principles that David Sandler, the founder of the Sandler Selling Methodology, um, uh, implemented. Now, David Sandler was the CEO of a family-owned business. It was Cookies and Crackers, and he got ousted in a proxy battle. And he ended up having to take two jobs, one of which was selling uh, motivational uh, records, 78 records. He used to lug around a big record player. Um, and and uh, that, so they are here. That not only are they heavy, but he had to do this for eight hours a day. And then he had a second job in order to make up the income that he was earning as a CEO. Um, so he realized that he wasn't really very valuable as a CEO and he was being carried. Now, um, he went zero for 52 sales meetings in a row um, without making a sale. And um, he realized at that point that he had to do something. Okay. Um, he, what did he, he 
he realized that at that point he had to do something to change. So he started yeah. asking himself questions. And these questions were, well, why do I do it this way? What if I did the opposite? So instead of closing at the end, if I close at the beginning, if I establish what the criteria are for them to buy, then I can save myself an awful lot of time and I can disqualify instead of qualifying in, I'll qualify out. What if I get the prospect to do the presentation? What if I get the prospect to handle their own objections? What if I get the prospect to close themselves? And so he flipped it on its head. And as a result of that, he um, then went out and sought advice from people like Dr. Eric Byrne, who uh, created the uh, psychological uh, model of uh, transaction analysis. Um, and that came out of an interesting um, experience where he was uh, dealing with um, a lawyer client of his and the, the, uh, the uh, patient started to laugh at an inappropriate time. And he asked him, why, why did you laugh at this point? And said, well, the child inside me uh, thought it was funny. And so he came up with this model of the parent, the adult and the child ego states. And um, TA burgeoned from there. Um, there's another couple of models that are really powerful that I teach uh, within Sama. Um, there is the drama triangle. Now, if you imagine a, an equilateral triangle on its point, and at the bottom, you have the victim voice. Why me? It's how this always happens. Save me. Okay. Then on the top right, you have um, the persecutor. And the persecutor is you piece of you always, you never, you're such a disappointment. You always, you've ruined the whole day. And it comes with a jabby index finger and the pronoun you in capitals. And it attacks you at an identity level. And then you have the rescuer. I was only trying to help. Um, and they're mollycoddling, they're permissive. Um, they help without boundaries or permission. And if you look at our, our favorite types of television programming, they all operate from the drama triangle, soap operas, reality TV, and the news. I mean, when was the last time, Sam, that you watched the news and you thought, by God, I feel good. I can't no, wait no, for the next episode. Exactly, never. So the drama triangle involves people moving from the victim to the persecutor, the rescuer to the victim, and swapping positions. And ego thrives on drama. That's why ego is the enemy, and drama is an indicator that you've taken one of those three positions. Now, my favorite philosopher, Bruce Lee, was asked, what's the best way to avoid a punch? And he said, be somewhere else. Truly <laughs> inspirational advice. You don't have to be far. You, know, you can just be an inch out of the way of the punch. Um, but being somewhere else means you don't get hit. And somewhere else is this thing called the winner's triangle, which was developed by, by a guy called A.C. Choi. Um, and instead of being a victim, you're vulnerable. Instead of being a persecutor, you're assertive. And instead of being rescuing, you're nurturing and empathic. And so a, a simple example of this is if I'm running late and I turn up and I say, it's not my fault, victim. Yeah. Sam Satnath took me all the way around the house. Road works everywhere, persecutor. Okay. I was doing my best. Yeah. That sounds to me like someone who doesn't take ownership, personal responsibility, and is blaming, yeah, making excuses. Now that's not very attractive, but operating from the winner's triangle, Sam, I am so sorry. It's entirely my fault. I left too late and I misjudged how uh, heavy the traffic would be. I understand that you're busy and I'm pretty sure that you're upset with me. 
would you like me to turn around and I can just chalk this up to experience and hope you can forgive me? Yeah. yeah that, that's being honest about what happened and not trying to lie or make an excuse or which is so many people do. That's about being authentic. It's yep. about taking responsibility. And so again, in a sales environment, what we hear all the time is sales managers listening to excuses and then those things roll uphill. Have you ever noticed? So the salespeople make an excuse. It's the economy. It's our competition. It's our marketing. It's our pricing. It's our management. Yeah. Um, and then the manager puts that in their pocket and then goes to the uh, VP of sales and says, well, you know, it's a tough market, tough economy. Um, it's, um, you know, the, our pricing. Yeah. And then it goes to the CFO and then to the CEO and then to the board. Well, that's all rubbish. If salespeople make excuses and you can test for this in the interview process. So one of my favorite questions is, so Sam, when is it okay to lie to a prospect? Uh, never. That is the only right answer and it needs to come quickly. Um, if someone is taking too long over answering that or they come back and say, well, you know, you can sometimes gloss it over. That's an instant, it's over as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Okay. Um, and why aren't you a better salesman? And if they come back with excuses rather than saying, you know, that's a very fair question. I'm working on this area and this area because these are areas of weakness. And I'm hoping that if I, um, uh, if, if I secure this position, that you will help me to develop those. That's a plus. Okay. But I don't want salespeople who make excuses or blame or justify or defend their non-performance. I want salespeople who take ownership and understand that they are 100% responsible for the results that they get. Yes, um, a financial collapse, that's outside of their control. But there are plenty of people who still made good business uh, and wrote good business in the recession. And they continue to thrive no matter what the economy. They, um, as long as the product does what it says and the service is okay, um, then they can make sales. And uh, in the channel, again, what we need is channel managers who don't make excuses and who don't hide behind um, bureaucracy and don't hide behind rules. What they do is they're always focused on service, service, service. Salespeople, the same thing. It's all about service and building trust, maintaining trust. And your currency, in, um, and whether it's a direct or indirect sale, is influence. And you can only do that by uh, keeping the promises that you make. You're known by the promises you keep, not the ones that you make. So don't make idle promises. Don't make promises to make people like you. And um, if you have to say, you know, Sam, unfortunately, I'm not going to be able to help you out on this occasion. I'm not going to be able to give you that discount. In fact, unless I walk away from here with a 7% increase in our rate, we're going to have to walk away from our relationship. Now, I'm sorry to tell you that. However, the decision is now yours. And you need to have steel in your spine. But mm -hmm. very few people do. You have to be ready to have difficult conversations with people. And selling takes courage. It's not for the faint of heart. Yeah, and I, th I think the, the challenge comes back down to when you see some salesmen who are commission only, and it's all about, you know, they're just surviving. They've just got to make the next 
you know, quota, the next quarter, the next whatever, whatever. Um, and they will, they will see that, that, you know, I guess not lying, that would be a little bit maybe too harsh, but embellishing the truth to get the sale is, is acceptable. And so they, they get through it and then, look, guess what? I made the top 100 salesman. I've just gone to the Caribbean. It seemed to have worked. I'll keep doing that reinforcing act because that's what's worked. I'm not saying, I've listened very carefully to what you said and I 100% agree. The most uh, empathetic way of having a long-term relationship and building on yourself is to be honest to yourself, be honest to the client, be trustworthy and trusting um, equally. And that's how a relationship of trust builds. But but there are salesmen, and you and I have come across them, I'm sure, who who will, would sell their granny just to make their quota. And that's one of the things that buyers are conditioned with as well. On their mother's knee, they're taught, don't become a salesperson, for heaven's sake. You know, become a lawyer, be a fireman, uh, street, sweep the streets, but don't become a salesperson because they can't be trusted. And I think sales is a force for good. Um, I, I genuinely believe that if it's done well. Now, you mentioned commission only. I'm commission only. If I don't sell something, I starve. Now, clearly, um, I'm doing okay. Um, now, um, You're a fitness, fitness instructor for sales teams. For any of you who haven't seen a photograph of me, I'm five foot seven, but the right weight for a man of 15 foot six. Um, and I don't have skinny kids. Um, so um, it, it's, it's less about being uh, commission only. And I know that you were using that as an example, but what I see very often is that salespeople settle. They settle for their basic salary and they're okay not making their bonus. I, I think that um, too often compensation drives the wrong behaviors. In, in the same way that in uh, marketing uh, programs where you incentivize and, and then when the incentive stops, then uh, engagement drops below the previous level. There's a really interesting book by Alfie Cohn, K-O-H-N, called Punished by Rewards. Um, that's a must read for anyone in management. And uh, he talks about the negative impact that um, rewarding people uh, for doing their job um, can have. And it's really fascinating and it has some really interesting ramifications for compensation schemes. Um, I, I think people should be motivated for reasons other than money. I genuinely do not believe there is anyone on the planet who is motivated purely by money. M money is, um, when you reach a certain threshold of around 70, 80 grand, anything beyond that probably is icing on top of the cake. Um, and all it then becomes is a benchmark of how much other people value what you do. Um, and I don't believe that you need to lie. I don't believe that you need to be dishonest or self-serving when you're in sales. Back to Stephen Colley's quote, the greatest among us serve the most. The best salespeople I know care. They genuinely care about their customers. They care about doing the right thing. They have a strong set of values. Um, they have belief systems that support um, those behaviors. And um, behavior drives attitude, not the other way around. If you're waiting for a salesperson's attitude to be right, you're gonna be waiting for a very cold day in hell. If they do the behavior, the results start to come in and then their belief system catches up. So what's really key here is to focus on the right end of the problem. And I think if you take away nothing else from this conversation, it is this. You will perform only to the level that your self-concept will allow.
So, okay. if you see salespeople as greedy, self-serving, you will not want to behave like your perception of a salesperson. And so you will call yourself something else. You'll take some fluffy title like business development consultant. I actually remember a sales meeting when I was selling software where I fought uh, in order to change our title uh, to business development consultant pre-summer. Um, and I look back on that with a certain degree of shame, um, but I didn't know any better. I thought I was doing the right thing. Um, but the reality is there should be no shame in being a great salesperson. My belief is that if you sell excellently, no one should ever be ashamed to come in after you uh, to sell. Um, if, on the other hand, you've been a self-serving, money-grabbing, commission-orientated, um, pushy, greedy, um, lying salesperson, then you do all of us a disservice. And people like that need to be drummed out of the profession. The good news is that I think a lot of those people will be out of uh, a job fairly soon because of the advent of a lot of new technologies around AI. Um, and what's really interesting is there's a terrible, useless statistic, um, which um, is something like 64% of the buyer's decision has already been made by the time they invite in a salesperson. What that tells me is your salespeople are rubbish. They should have been having those conversations and helping the customer to form their opinion and identify that center of dissatisfaction, those needs, and helping them craft the solution so that you are the uh, solution provider of choice. Um, but most salespeople are passive. They aggressively stare at the phone, praying it will ring. They spend their time tap, tap, tapping away on keyboards, hoping that somehow people will read their email. I get about 500 emails a day. Three maybe grab my attention. Um, and then I take, uh, pay attention to the ones coming from my clients. Um, but anyone trying to peddle me, SEO, IT services, HR services, telecoms, um, and other guff that I have no interest in without trying to engage me in a conversation, that's just interruption. And um, again, this is why I think salespeople need to be lazy and intelligent. One of my heroes is a guy called Carl von Clausewitz, and he wrote a book called On War, which is the sort of Bible for Sandhurst, West Point, and all the military academies. When he was recruiting Prussian officers, he would recruit them for laziness and high intelligence. Minimum effort, minimum loss of life. Salespeople should be recruited for the same two qualities. And um, they're looking for better ways of doing things more efficiently, more effectively. And they have the intelligence to be able to ask fantastic, insightful questions, to be able to join the dots, uh, to be strategic, to call at the top and have intelligent conversations with people with chief in their title, and then work their way through the organization to their galvanizing the entire team and making sure all the ducks are lined up so that they only have to do one presentation, one demo. Sometimes, I mean, to be perfectly honest, most of the time, you never have to do a demo if you sell this way. Um, if you do, the demo is maybe 10 minutes long. It focuses on the top two or three things that the customer needs to have confirmed, and you don't have to give references either. I mean, when someone asks you for a reference, are you likely to give a bad one? No, absolutely not. So then you have to ask, so Sam, am I likely to give you a bad reference? No. Okay, so there must be a reason why you're asking for a reference. Now I'm getting to the truth, because I need to understand the why behind your action. 
And this is where most salespeople go wrong because I was always taught, don't ask closed questions and don't ask why questions because they make the prospect defensive. I say the opposite, ask why questions all the time and definitely ask uh, closed questions, yes or no questions, because they're directional. And the reason my managers told me not to ask no, uh, yes or no questions was because they didn't know how to sell past no. 80%, 80% of my income comes after someone has said no to me. Now, what that means is I don't have to do a lot of prospecting. If I do the disqualification process and they make it to the bottom and I've got them to say no to me early and they're still talking to me, by the time I get to the bottom, it's kind of a shoo-in and I don't have to work terribly hard. And I don't believe salespeople should work hard either. They should work smart. They should look at who should we disqualify so I can focus and prioritize all of my effort, resources, attention, investment on those who can and will buy and disqualify early those who could but won't. And this is why you end up with that constipated pipeline full of hoper hopers and maybes and deals slip. And that's why you end up in two year sales cycles. There is nothing on the planet that should take longer than six months to close. If they're a genuine prospect, if they're not, put them back into the marketing tickler file um, and then you know, maintain the contact with them and engage with them um, and have, um, you know, maintain a regular um, cadence of contact. Um, but that's not a prospect, that's a suspect. So you have a suspect, a prospect, a qualified prospect, a closable prospect. And there are three metrics I always teach my clients to focus on. Number one, having five unique effective conversations per day with prospects who are in your target market and are likely to have a pain you can fix today. And they are likely to be a decision maker who is both willing and able to make the decision, willing and able to invest the time, the money, resources, and give you access, and working towards a clearly defined timetable to make their decision. Now, that would go into forecast at 10% probability. When I speak to most of my clients, they say that's a 90 percenter. So you've got to be ruthless in how you manage your pipeline. Then a qualified prospect meets those five criteria and has answered 70% um, of the questions you need to have answered. And what we're looking at there is the velocity that we move opportunities through the top of the funnel from lead to suspect to prospect to qualified prospect to closable and to, um, then to closed. Because if that velocity is slowing down, that tells the manager where they need to coach the salesperson at a specific point. Is it their tonality? Is it the questions that they're asking? Are they accepting wishy-washy responses? Are they presenting too early? Are they um, um, circumnavigating the sales methodology and jumping ahead uh, to do the stuff that they feel comfortable with rather than the stuff that they feel uncomfortable with? Um, and so, Five unique effective conversations a day. Look at the velocity and make sure that it's consistent and fast. And then the third is getting 300 to 500% more in the pipeline at the qualified moving to closable stage than you need in order to hit your quota. If you do that, then you have choice. Then you can decide who am I going to prioritize my uh, efforts with. If this one, for some reason, there's a budget freeze or um, someone's been fired or um, another project has priority, then I know that I can spend time on um, those who can and will buy. And inside sales.com, 
April, released a piece of research based on 116 million uh, sales activities. So it's a very good statistical base. And what they identified was that salespeople who prioritize close 46.1% more frequently than salespeople who don't. So you can almost double your close rate. Yeah, so you can almost double your close rate by prioritizing. Now, if you focus on those who can and will, you prioritize, um, you focus on those who have pain, you can genuinely fix today, okay? Um, you focus on filling the front uh, top of your funnel and making sure that it's uh, moving through the funnel efficiently. Um, then you hit quota. I, I have a client over in Sweden um, who came to me at 25% of target five weeks from um, his next performance review. Within five weeks, we had him back up uh, to the right uh, velocity. Um, within seven months, he was at 200% of quota and he entered the second year at 500% of quota. And every quarter since then, he's hit his annual target every quarter by being more efficient. He had to do away with all but eight of his 42 accounts because he couldn't cope with the volume. And he's turned those accounts, uh, those customers into accounts, into marketplaces. And he's got the highest conversion rate on cold calls. He's got the highest conversion rate uh, on sales opportunities. He makes the most margin out of anyone in his region because he's prioritizing and he's put the customer right at the heart of everything. I love it. Now, uh, you've written a book we were talking about earlier. Yeah. What's the book called? Let's go with it's the title called, first. It's called Making Channel Sales Work. Okay. Given what we've been talking about for the last half hour, I'm pretty sure you can make channel sales work. <laughs> so what made you want to write a book about it, though? I mean, clearly, you're being successful already outside of it. What was the, what was the raison d'etre behind writing a book? I spotted a one-inch piece on one of the online magazines that I was reading, and it was a piece of research from Gartner. And it said, by 2026, 90% of technology sales will be sold through partners. And it sparked a question in my mind. Well, that sounds like quite a big market. Um, so I did some research and I uh, did an Amazon search for books on channel. Um, and I discovered that there were 180 books on the channel, 150 books on the channel. Today, there are 180. Um, and uh, there were 364,000 that came up about direct sales. Now, um, then I did some more research and I got in, in touch with a guy called Jay McBain, who's the lead analyst for Forrester on the channel. And we had a chat and he said something that really sparked my curiosity, which is that 70% of all products sold today. So as I look around your room, your microphone, your clothes, your headphones, your shelving, your files, the, uh, the frame on uh, the back of your wall, 70% um, of all products sold across all 26 vertical markets are sold through partners today. That is a $15 trillion a year market. And I thought, that's quite underserved. Um, so then that's, started, <laughs> uh, started, say that's a big enough market to deal with. Yeah, absolutely. I, I will take 0.00001% of that and still walk out like a bandit. Um, so then I started to do my research and I started interviewing um, a bunch of people and I teamed up with uh, another son of franchisee, David Davies, and we interviewed about 60 top performers in the channel. And what we realized was that they were massively underserved by the vendors. 
um, vendors tend to be very selfish. Um, they are self-centric rather than partner-centric. Um, so we, we talk, talk about being I-centric rather than uh, partner-centric. Um, and so they weren't putting the partners front and center. Um, they didn't spend enough time trying to understand why the partners were in business, why the individual salespeople were in sales and what they wanted to achieve. But what we found was the best vendor channel managers did exactly that. So I've recently interviewed a guy called Kieran Cron, um, who won the award for the world's best channel manager in HubSpot. And I have to say, I was deeply skeptical uh, by that um, award. Having interviewed him, honestly, I'm not surprised. The man is just a gem. He's only been in sales seven years, but he spends 70 to 75% of his time coaching individual salespeople within his partners. The rest of the time is working with the owners of those partners, helping them build their business. He's, it's not about him. He is all about service. And so it was a joy to find somebody who was so embodying everything that we uh, wrote about in the book. So we look at uh, a number of things. First of all, what does a perfect partnership look like? Well, there isn't one. Um, but what we can do is identify what are the conditions that need to exist for you to have a good, strong partnership. You know, before you put a ring on their finger, make sure that you're compatible. Um, then we look at the channel manager's rights, um, which again, when you ask channel managers what their rights are, they go, the oh, and you know, a little bit of drool dribbles out of their mouth. Um, now, once you've recruited them, and you spend a lot of money and time and resource recruiting them, and let, let me deal with this, um, often what you find is that um, organizations will recruit anyone with a pulse. So there'll be at an exhibition, people will say, oh, that looks interesting, can we sign up as a partner? And they sign them up. I, I was at Hypergrowth on Monday um, last week, and I was speaking to the uh, product marketing manager of a SaaS company. And we got onto the subject of channel, I don't know how. Um, and um, I asked him, how many partners do you have? And he said, I have a thousand. Okay, and how many of them actually produce? And he looked slightly ashen at that point. And he said, well, about 200. And I said, of those 200, uh, what percentage comes out of the top uh, 10 to 20%? Um, and he said, well, about 60% comes out of 20 of them. So 2% of their partners are top producers and 98% are not. So things go wrong in the recruitment process and they're compounded in the onboarding process because most partners, their idea of onboarding is they give them access to the partner portal if they have one, then they send them a load of product data sheets and they teach them about product. You need to teach your partners how to sell your stuff. Now this is again a cultural problem because the CFO will often say, why should I spend money training my partner salespeople when they're gonna use what I teach them to sell my competitor's product? Well, that's a very short term and uh, myopic uh, perspective because if you teach them how to sell your stuff, they will sell more of it and they will become loyal because behavior drives attitude. Now, once you've done that onboarding process and that onboarding process we believe is 120 days, and um, when, when you uh, last went for a job, when you were employed and you went for a job, chances are in the first four months, the first 120 days, you are deciding, is this the job I was sold? Is my boss a total whatever? Okay. Yep. Do I like the people I'm working with? Can I do this job? Do I want to do this job? Was I better off where I was? Yeah. 
Now that absolutely. onboarding process. Yes. Sorry, say again. Absolutely, yes. Okay, I, I agree. So that onboarding process for any new hire in any new position is critical. They need to know what they need to know by when they need to know it and where they can find the answers. And it needs to be structured. Even if you're hiring veterans, even if you're taking on partners who are well experienced, you need to take them through this process so that you, by the end of 120 days, they are self-sufficient. That doesn't mean that they are independent, they are interdependent and they will work with you in partnership. And remember the definition we use of partners is that you help each other get better. So once you've done that, then you have to understand that you have to manage without power. Channel sales management is the hardest, most challenging sales role there is bar none. Because you have no power, you don't hire, you don't fire, you don't compensate, you don't penalize, you can't implement consequences or anything like that. All you have is influence and how you build trust. Those are your currencies. And if you're not good at managing without power, then you're in trouble. Now, we've worked with one of our partners, the Divine Group, um, to devise a psychometric profile to predict um, whether someone will work out uh, well in a channel, sale, channel management or a channel chief role. And what we've identified is that a channel manager role is much closer to a general manager than to a sales manager. And a channel chief is almost exactly like a CEO not like a VP of sales. So they're very different animals. Planning is the next piece. Um, most people avoid planning, but you know, in the military they have the six Ps. Uh, uh, prior planning prevents pe uh, poor performance. Yep. Um, exactly. And um, the plan never survives contact with the enemy. We get that. Um, but if you haven't done the planning, then you're spending all of your time thinking about what the next question is, and um, I mean, when was the last time you s spoke to a, a prospect and they came up with something original? You can plan your questions. You can plan how you're going to uh, neutralize objections. You can plan virtually everything. And if something comes in from left field, you've got breathing space to be able to think about how you respond instead of reacting. Um, planning, pre-call planning, rehearsal. Execution, then post-call debrief, both in writing and verbally. Using that post-call debrief to refine your pre-call plan for the next stage. Really important. When you think about what the cost of not doing that is, it is astronomical. Because um, when you think about how much time, energy, resource gets sucked into generating a lead, and then you have to burn through, let's say, a dozen leads to get one good meeting, and then in order to get one meeting to final, uh, one prospect to final stage, you have to go through maybe a three to five meeting cycle. And um, only one in seven of those gets through to final stage and you close one in three at final stage. Why would you not do that preparation? To me, not doing that is an act of gross misconduct and should be a cause for a, a written warning and a consequence that within one month, they're worked out of the business if they don't change their behavior. Um, so that's being a bit tough, but I think it works. Um, you need to help them stay on the right course. You need to be able to refine, um, and you're, there's a constant um, uh, process of coaching, communication, regular dialogue, um, and honest dialogue. I'm a fan of uh, constructive conflict. I think constructive conflict is a great thing, but lots of people who particularly suffer from that rescuer syndrome and avoid conflict of any description. 
Constructive conflict is where the best ideas come from. We can fight, we agree to not make it personal, and we agree that at the end, whatever the decision, we will support it, even if it wasn't our position. And then we're working together. And this is where partnership is really key, um, because it's at that point that you able to get more out of one another. Um, and it's a seamless and frictionless experience for the customer. Back to that whole customer experience and partner experience, it's all about making it seamless and fric uh, frictionless. And the future of the channel is gonna be really interesting because you're seeing two things. There's a bifurcation in the channel. You're seeing um, marketplaces being created by vendors in order to disintermediate the partners. And the partners will bring the lead in and then the relationship will be owned by the vendor. And that works okay at the low end, but for complex sales, what you're starting to see is partners working with partners because no one vendor has the overall solution. And increasingly, those partners are going to need to work together and they're gonna to need to have channel chiefs working within them um, to make sure that they're coordinating uh, those partnerships. And um, then the relationship is really within the gift of the partner and they decide which vendors come in. So it's up to the vendor channel managers to really build trust, build influence uh, within the partners. And it's increasingly more complex mm -hmm. within a team. My, my sweet spot is a three to 50 million pound turnover, scale up technology business that wants to grow from where they are to a billion dollars over the next eight years. And to be able to grow at scale fast without losing control. So helping them put in place those uh, processes, those people, those positions, the performance metrics, making sure that they're accelerating all of that. Um, we, one of our clients, you may have heard of them, Splunk, they went from 30 million to 1.1 billion in five years. Wow, that's growth. That is serious growth. That's 200% growth per annum. Now, that's not even hyper growth in our world. Okay, now to maintain that kind of uh, scale, you have to have the right culture. So people who have a sense of entitlement, you have to replace quickly if they won't change. Um, you have to make sure that there are good systems and processes in place. You have to focus on the right end of the problem. There is a constant culture of training, development, coaching, accountability, and working in that kind of environment is a thrill. Um, you know, people, I, I've spoken to lots of people from environments like that, and they cannot wait for Monday to come. Friday comes around too fast. Um, work is a thrill. It, it becomes an obsession um, because it's so exciting and they're seeing progress. They work as a team collaboratively, collegiate uh, environment where um, it's about us and we, not I and me. Um, and once you build that kind of culture, um, and you start winning those accounts, then you're in the process of service delivery. Now, that's where the greatest growth can come. Um, the mistake people make in sales, I believe, is once you've done the sale, they hand it over to operations or uh, professional services, and they're done. That's daft. You know, you could sell to their sister companies, their parent companies, their joint ventures, their alliances, their supply chain. The it's this marketplace that you defined. Absolutely. Oh, the customer's <laughs> customer could be a customer. Um, and then make sure that you're regularly reviewing and appraising the partnership, what's working, what's not. So the traditional QBR, quarterly business review, is basically I turn up and I try and peddle you more stuff. 
we do something called a QVR, a quarterly value review, that's based on uh, either a customer-centric satisfaction tool or a partner-centric satisfaction tool, where we offer the, uh, the partner or the customer the opportunity to hold us to account. They define and decide what those criteria are, and as long as they're within our control, we accept them. And then they weight them in terms of importance, and then they rate us every quarter to make sure that they're holding our feet to the fire, keeping us honest. And anything less than a score of 4.7 aggregated score, I would consider to be failure out of five. So it's uh, five criteria that they hold our feet to the fire on. Uh, they score them out of five. Typically, they'll be around uh, an aggregated score of five apiece. Um, and then unless we're scoring at least 4.7, I want to know why. Um, and if we are, there's always a reset every quarter. What actions do we need to take in order to continue improving? Now, this then feeds into account retention and partner retention. Because if you're constantly doing this, your customers are not going to be easily moved. Because when a competitor comes in, they're trying to sell them product. What you're doing is you're acting as a strategic partner that is helping them achieve their strategic and personal objectives helping them uh, preempt where they need to be moving their business. So in technology, you shouldn't be selling tech. No one in the history of humanity has ever woken up and bought a CRM system any more than they bought training or they bought uh, content marketing. There's a reason behind it. And if we understand that and we really understand it and they, Mark Galston says, everybody be heard, feel felt and be understood. If you help them be heard, feel felt, and be understood, they will find a way to help you get more business. If they feel understood, they know that you value them. They know that you appreciate them. KPMG did a study about 15 years ago, but it still holds true. 80% of um, business owners fired their vendors because they didn't feel appreciated anymore. 80% of employees leave their manager because they don't feel appreciated. You leave your boss, you don't leave the job of the company normally. Yeah? Um, and then um, you have to understand that your partners are coin-operated. If you're not helping them to make money, they're going to go dark on you. So what's really important is not the first sale, it's the second sale within 90 days. Because if they haven't made that second sale, they're just going to go dark. So like that product marketing manager with a 1,000 partners, 98% of his partners aren't producing to full capacity, and uh, 800 of them have just gone dark within the first 90 days. So all that time, money, resource, and effort is wasted. Yeah, so, they've moved on. <clears throat> yeah, absolutely. So <clears throat> that's what the book is all about. And so I've created a whole series of videos around this. If people want to uh, take a peek at my YouTube video uh, channel, um, then look for the playlist around uh, making channel sales work and partnerships. Um, and we've produced a couple of programs, one based on the book and one based on getting uh, partners and vendors working together uh, so that we get them through that onboarding process uh, where we create, co-create a plan, uh, where we co-create the positions, where we look at the people that they have and see whether or not on either side they're right. And um, then we look at the um, processes that they both need. Then we look at how we're going to measure them. Then we teach them a uh, joint uh, or a shared language and methodology for selling. And then we take three live opportunities um, and help them plan how they're going to go to market and close that business within the next 90 days. Um, and then there's an ongoing reinforcement program 
that involves monthly touches, quarterly face-to-face, -face, uh, coaching, um, online learning, all that kind of stuff. So that we're actually turning them into a sales engine. And that's really where the fitness instructor piece comes in. You, know, you don't go to a PT once um, and think you're fit. You've got to go back time and time again. You've got to do the exercise. Um, it's, it's like washing. You, know, you do it once, you're going to stink in a week. Um, same thing with this. If you're not practicing daily, if you're not improving constantly, um, then you're falling back and your competition will eat you alive. Wow. Wow. Now, I've got one final question for you. You mentioned something earlier, which I was interested. You said that the future of sales may be AI. Why? Um, I think order takers are effectively being replaced by AI. You know, the series and um, the um, Alexas of this world, uh, you know, that, that kind of technology will allow people to get that kind of information. Um, and if all you are is an order taker, then I think your job is in serious risk, um, serious risk. Um, and the, the threat from that uh, is very real um, because that statistic I mentioned earlier where 65% of the decision has already been made before they invite in a, um, a salesperson, that's because you're not good at selling, you're an order taker. And frankly, either um, you know, uh, fix yourself or expect to be uh, working in B&Q. <laughs> Marcus, thank you very much. It's been fascinating. Uh, where can people find you again? Just remind everyone, what's the best place to find you? Best place to get me is on LinkedIn. Um, so if you type in my name, Marcus Kauke, um, then you'll find me on there. Um, you'll also find me on Twitter as the underscore Inquisitor, capital T for the, and Inquisitor, capital I. Um, and uh, you can also call me on 07515-937-221. And um, please get in touch, connect. Uh, if you have a question is really gnarly and troubling you, um, then ask me to produce some content. I'll either produce a blog or a video. Uh, or if you feel the urge and you're brave enough, haha, um, then you're welcome to come as my guest uh, to either my training and uh, or one of my colleagues training you can crash a class at no cost come as my guest it's on me um and i'll put you into a class uh, that will be relevant but we'll need to speak beforehand so you can tell me what it is that you want uh, to get from it uh, so it's a good investment of your time marcus it's been a great investment of my time spending time with you this morning thank you so much thank you sam that show was amazing to listen again please visit our website marlofm.co.uk or visit our facebook group sam talks technology and now you can subscribe on itunes never miss a show again see you next week same time same place